Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to episode number 22 and today I'm joined by Kieran Krishnan and we're talking all about the gut microbiome and gut health. Kieran is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 17 years. He also established a clinical research organisation where he designed and conducted dozens of human clinical trials in nutrition. Most recently, Kieran is acting as the Chief Scientific Officer at Physicians Executive and Microbiome Labs. He has developed over 50 private label nutritional products for small to large brands in the global market. Kieran offers his extensive knowledge and practical application of the latest science on the human microbiome as it relates to health and wellness. In this episode, we discuss the impact of our microbiome on our hormonal health and our weight management, the benefits of probiotic supplements and whether it's really necessary for everyone to take one, how to choose the right probiotic and what to look for when selecting one, whether fermented foods are helpful or not, why the current approach to treating gut infections isn't helpful or effective, and the key factors for improving gut health, including food, human connection, and the problems with being too clean. This episode is packed with information, so I recommend taking notes if that's possible. I personally learned a lot in this episode and was taking notes throughout because Kieran is a wealth of knowledge and I actually heard him talk in London in 2017 at one of the ICANN seminars on digestive health and since then I've been really involved in his work and his research and definitely trust his opinion on this subject. So get out your pen and paper and let's get into the episode. Hi Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't you get started by sharing a bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're so fascinated with the microbiome. Sure, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, Hugely important topic, uh, and especially when we're talking about hormones and and the balance, and, and I think people will start to understand what a critical role the microbiome plays in that respect. Um, how I got into the microbiome, and so let me tell you a little bit about myself first. So I'm a research microbiologist. I started my career um, in strict uh, microbiology, molecular medicine research. What does all of that mean? Well, it means I was a nerd in the lab, really, <laughs> you know, and I was working and tinkering on things with bacteria and DNA and uh, vaccines and, you know, various types of studies. Um, but But soon came to realize that my big passion was in the nutrition, holistic health space, um, but being a microbiologist, I understood, of course, you know, that microbes play such a significant role in our sickness, but it was starting to come out that microbes also play a significant role in our wellness. 
And the Human um, Microbiome Project, which launched back in, I think it was 2006, um, basically started studying the role of microbes in our wellness and the function of our body from day to day, um, our basic uh, necessities of being human, how that is impacted by the microbes that live in and on us. And to me, that was like a natural fit because I already understood microbes. I already understood the whole concept of microbial ecology. That's the ecology that microbes make up in our system, on our system, in the world around us. Um, and then being able to tie that back to human health and how that can impact human health in a positive way became the, you know, the thing that I was most passionate about. So I jumped in with both feet a um, little over 12 years ago and all my research work, product development work, um, speaking engagement, all of those have been focused on the role of the microbiome on human health and how we can influence the microbiome to, to improve human health. Mm, yeah, and I actually attended one of the conferences that you lectured at in London, I think it was 2017, um, oh, yeah. all on gut health. And yeah, so I want to kind of cover some of those topics today yeah. and yeah, bust some myths on the microbiome and gut bacteria, things like that. So why don't we start off with the connection between the gut microbiome and our hormones? So yeah. our female sex hormones and also what about weight as well? How does our gut bacteria influence our weight? Sure. And so one of the really important things to understand is that the vast majority of your biochemical functions in your body, that is the production of hormones, the utilization of hormones, and then even the clearing of hormones, because you can develop a lot of conditions if you don't effectively clear hormones from your system. Estrogen is a great example of that, right? Estrogen is really important for the female and the male function. But if you build up too much estrogen and you can't clear it, then you end up with estrogen dominant conditions like uh, cancers, various types of cancers. So all of those processes, the, the production of hormones, the utilization of hormones, and the clearing of hormones are conducted by the microbiome. Your endocrine system does it as well, but there's significant amount of evidence that shows that your microbiome, so all of the microbes that live inside your system and on your system, on your skin, in your eyes, in your blood, um, in your urinary tract, in your vaginal tract, in your gut, of course, um, all of those microbes can produce and do produce all of the hormones that we need to function. They also play a significant role in converting some of those hormones to uh, a form that it can be utilized, and then they also play a role in clearing the hormones. You know, a great example of that is again estrogen. So estrobilome is a constellation or really a group of bacteria that exists in your microbiome whose job it is, is to break down estrogen and get rid of it from the body. So when you produce estrogen, when your microbiome produces estrogen, when your, when your organs produce estrogen uh, or your sex organs produce estrogen, your body utilizes it and then that estrogen has to be broken down and removed so you don't end up with estrogen dominance. Now that estrobolome, that constellation of bacteria, that's their job. They're supposed to take estrogen that's, that's being produced in the body and already utilized, break it down, metabolize it, and get rid of it. So if you've got a dysfunctional gut, one of the big issues you can end up with is an estrogen dominant system. Now here's what's so intricate and, and fascinating about it. You know, the, the biology in our, in our body works in, in intricate systems and there's lots of redundancy and almost nothing is wasted, right? So everything is used in some way or the other. And so it's, it's so elegant to see what happens when these bacteria break down estrogen. So 
what they do is they take estrogen, they break it down, the breakdown products of estrogen, they send into your mucosal system in your gut. It's transferred from the mucosal system in your gut into your vaginal mucosa, where it then feeds the critical bacteria that you need in your vaginal mucosa to maintain a healthy vaginal canal, which also impacts fertility. So the breakdown of estrogen in your gut by this constellation of bacteria ends up feeding the really critical bacteria in your vaginal canal that not only maintain a healthy vaginal canal so you don't uh, you reduce your risk of bacterial vaginosis, yeast infections, uh, UTIs, it also impacts fertility, right? So the, so the systems are all connected. The microbes work well with one another when you have adequate amount of uh, microbes and you don't have overabundance of pathogens and inadequate amounts of protective microbes. So, so that's the kind of intricacy that we have with our microbial companions that live in and on us. Not only can they produce the hormones, they produce estrogen, they can uh, break down estrogen, they can convert estradiol, estradiol, they can also break down the estrogen and then use it to feed the vaginal bacteria. So it's, um, it's a beautifully elegant system. Your microbiome also produces testosterone. It produces um, all of your stress hormones. So if you have an overabundance of certain pathogens, they will actually produce and induce a lot of stress hormone production, which can lead to anxiety, which can lead to nervousness, depression. Um, they also produce all of your metabolic hormones. So things like ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone, is produced uh, and stimulated by largely in the gut. Leptin, the, the hormone that is supposed to go up once you eat so that it tells your body to stop heat eating and it tells your body to stop being hungry, that is triggered by bacteria in the gut. Your, the hormones that are responsible for taking um, blood sugar out of your circulation and metabolizing it in the cells, that, the, that's also directed by bacteria in the gut. So you know everything is orchestrated by the right types of bacteria in the gut. So we cannot overstate the importance of a healthy microbiome uh, when we're looking at the human system. Mm. So would you say it's the, the blood glucose, the estrogen, and the stress inflammation aspect that leads to the white problems, kind of a, um, a trio of issues? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect storm of issues, right? And, so, and, and they all kind of follow one after the other. You, you get the hormone imbalancing, you get the symptoms associated with that, and then you start seeing the weight problems, the metabolism problems, and you start seeing issues with blood sugar control. Then you start seeing things like, you know, candida overgrowth and fungal overgrowth. Uh, you start seeing issues with fertility and, and vaginal dysbiosis with chronic bacterial vaginosis. All of those things, even though they all seem kind of, you know, disconnected and different, um, actually come from the same root cause. And the same root cause is a dysbiotic gut. So a gut that has experienced antibiotics or has experienced uh, pesticides and herbicides in your food, you know, chlorine in your drinking water, fluoride in your drinking water, um, you know, antibiotics in the food itself, on the meats, all of these things continue to dis, uh, create dysfunction in the gut microbiome population, and then you end up with this cascade of events that occurs. Mm -hmm. you know, and in men, you get the same thing. You know, men, you get um, one, of the, one of the features of men gaining weight is, um, is, is getting those uh, female-like uh, breasts, right? Uh, gynecomastia, they call it. And, and part of that reason is because of that increase in estrogen in men and the inability to break it down and get rid of it. You know, so, so men's body shapes start to change as well. So you see the same problem in both men and women. Hmm. 
Yeah. And you mentioned that it's the gut microbiome that create a lot of these hormones. How much of the gut microbiome is it? Is it 50% the, the organs and mm. the gut microbiome? Um, because we tend to think like your ovaries produce estrogen, but how much of the gut microbiome is playing a role in that? So that's a little bit unclear, and it may be different from person to person, uh, because one thing that's, that's unique about us, and, and really the one only thing that's really unique about us, is our microbiome, right? If you and I did a genetic test and looked at our chromosomal DNA, we would be probably 99.3, 99.5% similar. We'd only have about a half a percent difference between our genetic uh, material. But if we tested our microbiome, we could be as much as 70 or 80% different. Right? We might only have 20% similarity in our microbiome. So, so each person's microbiome is really quite unique. Now, in some people, I imagine that the, that the microbiome has to make up for a lot of dysfunctions in the organ and, and actually do 70 80% of the heavy lifting in terms of hormone production. In others, it may be as little as 20 or 30%. It's, it's a little unclear because when you're studying the microbiome, um, you're dealing with the issue of everybody having a different microbiome. And, and so everyone's microbiome functions slightly differently. And the, the role it plays in supporting the rest of the body is going to be a little bit different. But what we do know, without a doubt, is the microbiome is critical in hormone balance. You can't have effective production of hormones, effective utilization and metabolism of hormones without a proper functioning microbiome, which means a diverse microbiome. That's the one thing we can say across the board that would be similar for all of us, you know, because I can't look at my microbiome and your microbiome and go, yours is messed up because you've got these 17 strains that are really high and these 13 strains that are really low, you know, because that might be normal for you, right? Because that isn't a standard across the board for what a microbiome should look like. But one thing we do know, and we can say with certainty, is that a diverse microbiome is absolutely important in everybody. And a diverse microbiome is a one that has enough redundancies and capabilities to provide you with all of that hormone balancing support. And how do we make sure that we can achieve a diverse microbiome? Is it just about avoiding antibiotics and some of the things that you mentioned? Or is there steps that we can take to improve that? What about probiotics? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's the most important question of all, right, is what can we do about it? So I think, yes, in step one, the more you can avoid antimicrobials, the better off you are. So that means, you know, looking at your personal care products and basically scrubbing your personal care products of things that are antibacterial, you know, um, that, that kill stuff right? Your, your uh, soaps and shampoos and lotions and cleansers, all of that stuff does not need to be um, focused on killing bacteria. Your household products, you don't need to have chlorine-based cleaners or antibacterials in your house for normal cleaning purposes. If you have a specific contamination, like you bring home some raw chicken and the raw chicken juice gets on the countertop, yes, you do want to sterilize it because it's probably full of salmonella. But outside of that, just regular cleaning of your surfaces and all that, you don't need to, nor should you sterilize your environment. So that kind of simple cleaning up of your the environment around you can have a significant impact. But the biggest impact is going to come from the types of foods that you eat. 
So the more diverse your diet is, the more diverse your microbiome is going to be. My recommendation to people is, you know, each week kind of add in one food that you wouldn't normally eat. And it could be a vegetable that you would normally eat, a fruit you would normally eat, um, you know, some sort of fiber you would normally eat. And you don't have to eat a lot of it. You know, you just have to eat a little bit of a lot of different things. I always recommend to people to go to ethnic grocery stores in their area, whether it's a Middle Eastern store or Korean store, they'll have fruits and vegetables there that you don't see in your typical market. And eating just a little bit of it, you know, chopping some up, mixing it with a little bit of olive oil and eating it will create diversity within your microbiome. The other thing you can do that doesn't cost you anything at all is fasting. You know, fasting actually increases the diversity in your microbiome. So trying to add in a 12, 13, 14 hour fast each day, if you can get to 16 hours, that's even better. Just doing that will help increase the diversity of the microbiome. And it's kind of counterintuitive because you're thinking, okay, not feeding the microbiome can increase diversity. Well, there are bacteria within the microbiome that do well when there's no food coming through. You know, so that, that, that gives them a chance to kind of step up their population a little bit. Um, and then, you know, we've been working on a system with the probiotic and prebiotic, and we've got a study that will be publishing in a few months that shows that we can increase diversity in the microbiome by almost 40% by adding in the spore-based probiotic, the megasporebiotic, and then a prebiotic that we've designed with specific oligosaccharides called megaprebiotic. So that combination in itself, in three weeks, was able to increase the diversity of the microbiome by about 40%. Cool. Yeah, and I love, yeah, the megaspore probiotics, probably the only one that I use, because uh, it's pretty good for everyone if they've got histamine intolerance, if they've got SIBO, um, regardless of what's going on, it tends to be universally beneficial for a lot of people. Yeah, so I absolutely love that probiotic. Why is that different from the conventional refrigerated probiotics that we are told are the best? Yeah, you know, here's a fascinating thing about probiotics, right? So we didn't really understand anything about the microbiome till about 2012 or 2013, just a few years ago, just five years ago, six years ago. Um, but the virtually every probiotic that is prominent on the market today in, in the refrigerated section was developed well before that time, right? They've been on the market for 15 years, 20 years, or sometimes even more. So imagine products to treat the microbiome or treat the gut that were developed before we knew anything about the gut, right? And so we need an evolution in, this, in the, the science behind probiotics because we've had an evolution in understanding the gut and the microbiome. And it's not at all what we thought, right? So if you look at the vast majority of products on the market uh, that, that are marketed as probiotics, they use lactobacillus strains, right? Most of them have some combination of 5 to 10 to 15, some, in some cases, 20 different lactobacillus strains. Now, there are some with bifidobacteria as well, uh, but lactobacillus seems to be dominant in most of the probiotic products. So just to show the fallacy in our thinking with that, if you look at a normal microbiome, right, which has upwards of a thousand different species. So your microbiome, for example, may have 700, 800 different species of bacteria in it. Among all of those, lactobacillus makes up 1% or less of that total population. So 99% of the bacterial species in your gut are not lactobacillus. So how is it that our entire premise of probiotic therapy is based on a bacteria that makes up less than 1% of the total population, right? And so it, it's a fallacy. And the reason is because over the, over the decades before that, 
before we had all of these sophisticated sequencing technologies to be able to study what's actually in the gut, the only way we could study what was in the gut is by taking poop samples and plating it out. And one of the few things that does grow from poop samples is lactobacillus. And if you sampled your mouth, you will find some lactobacillus in there as well. And then lactobacillus also became a natural fermenter because it produces lactic acid when it breaks down sugar. So it creates a, a low pH fermentation, which is characteristic of yogurts and kefirs and things like that. So as a, as a species, it's been in the food source for a long period of time. And through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when they were sampling uh, stool samples and mouth samples and vaginal samples, they were finding lactobacillus there because that's one of the few things that can grow from your, from the, from your biological samples in a Petri dish. So the premise was lactobacillus is the major bacteria in the system. So in order to support the system, we got to just throw in as much lactobacillus as we can. And then people start to realize, well, lactobacillus is quite sensitive. So if you keep it on the shelf at room temperature, they start to die. And so the, the workaround for that is, well, let's put it in the fridge then. That makes them dormant so then they don't die. And then you can get a live culture. But the, my question when I first started the probiotic industry is, if they can't survive at 70 degrees Fahrenheit at room temperature, how do they survive 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit in the body? You know, and as it turns out, they don't. So there's, there's been a lot of fallacies in it. Now that we understand the human microbiome better, we need to kind of have a, uh, the next generation of probiotics. So what we were looking for um, in, the, in, in a probiotic was one that had the ability to influence those other 99% of strains in your system an orchestrator, if you will, of the, of the microbiota or the microbiome, right? And so uh, if you look at the human condition and you look at human evolution, once we're born and we pass through the birth canal, we get that big inoculum from mom um, after the time of nursing when we're getting all of these wonderful bacteria from mom through uh, breast milk, the rest of our lives for the next 60, 70, 80 years, we are interacting with bacteria in the environment. And as it turns out, most bacteria in the environment don't really have a major influence on the system, but there are some bacteria in the environment that we come in contact with or we're supposed to come in contact with all the time that can actually orchestrate change in the rest of the microbiome. And it seems like we've actually outsourced that function to these types of bacteria. So we actually worked with uh, Royal Holloway University of London, um, Dr. Simon Cutting, who had been working on these spore strains for decades, and is one of the most prolific uh, authors on this concept of spore strains. We went and we, we licensed away strains that he had developed for decades in his lab, and we started doing human clinicals. And as it turns out, when you put the spores back into the system, they dramatically increase the growth of all of the other beneficial strains in the gut, including your natural lactobacillus and your natural bifidobacteria. So that's a different concept. Now, the other thing they can do that's really important is they have the ability to look for pathogens, so something called quorum sensing. And then they can actually sit next to pathogens and produce antibiotics and antimicrobials to kill off the pathogens. They can also train your immune system to identify those pathogens later on. You know, so in, in Europe, actually, um, out of Germany and France, the spore-based probiotics were launched as a prescription drug in the 1950s to treat dysentery and other gut infections because they're so good at going after gut pathogens. So here are these bacteria that were supposed to come in contact with in the natural environment, so created by Mother Nature, 
input there for us, right, essentially, who that have the ability to go into your system, find bad bacteria that could be causing illness, kill them off, and at the same time, completely regenerate the growth of your other good bacteria. You know, and then as we've shown, it also seals up leaky gut. Um, which is one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest health drivers. So um, very, very fascinating bacteria that do really um, amazingly important things that just cannot be achieved with the old idea of probiotics. Mm. And how would the, the conventional probiotics, how is it that they can provide some benefits to a lot of people? So people with IBS can actually have some improvement. How, how could that be if they're not actually surviving in the gut? Yeah, so that's that. That's a question I had to answer myself because when I started looking at these strains and I go, well, they can't survive the stomach, they can't colonize, they're not getting the site of action. But there are studies that show certain products that are lactobifidobase that actually have an effect in improving symptomology. But then when you dig further into the studies, what you see is the bacteria, even when they're dead, and sometimes when, especially when they're dead, they, they can have even better effects. Right, so Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG is one of the most well-studied Lactobacillus uh, probiotic strains in the market. In the U.S., it's in a couple of major retail products. There are studies on the rhamnosus GG strain that show that if you specifically heat kill it, it actually has a better effect in the gut than when you're trying to keep it alive. Right, and that's because it's not the bacteria itself that's going living in the gut and creating any sort of change. The bacteria has some sort of microRNA or peptide or something within the cell wall structure or in the cell itself that has a metabolic response that creates a metabolic response in the body. And so, when you heat kill it and it breaks open the cell, actually, that's part of what gives you that increased response in the dead versions of the bacteria. However, the limitation of that is is twofold. One is the, the effect only lasts while the, while the bacteria are moving through your system. So that's typically 12, 13, 14 hours. If you stop taking them, then the effect completely goes away. And so you're not really making any fundamental changes to your microbiome. Uh, the other problem is that it's really specific to certain strains. Like Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG is a very specific variety of rhamnosus. And that's the one that has some of these, uh, some of these effects. For example, it can shorten uh, rotavirus infection duration in kids. But if you take regular rhamnosus, you have no such effect within the system because it doesn't have that one special quality about it. You know, and so same thing with Bifidobacterium infantis 35624. That has studies showing certain effects. But if you take regular infantis, the generic infantis that most companies use, it doesn't have that effect. So you can have one strain with one effect, but it has to be that very specific strain, and the effect only lasts while the strain is in your system. Mm -hmm. So it can be beneficial to alleviate symptoms, but it's not making any change in your system. Mm -hmm. And the antimicrobial effects that the spore-based probiotics can have, would that be enough to use as a standalone treatment for something like SIBO, so small intestine bacterial overgrowth? And mm -hmm. also what are your thoughts on antimicrobial treatment so a lot of the time it's focusing on killing and eradicating the bacteria in the small intestine do you have a different approach to that yeah completely actually i was just having a, um, a conversation with a, a colleague that runs the whole SIBO SOS uh, program just before this you know and i did a talk at a, at a show in the u.s called the SIBO con which is kind of one of their the big SIBO conferences and we've been looking at the SIBO the issue of SIBO completely wrong in the wrong way right because 
what, when we say SIBO, we're focused on that symptom of overgrowth and bloating and distension, right? That becomes the problem. The problem with it is that's a symptom of a different problem. And, and the, the overgrowth and the, and the SIBO symptomology of the bloating, the distension in the belly the, in response to food is like five steps down the road from the original cause. And one of the things I did in the talk is I showed how the original cause of dysbiosis, and that dysbiosis can be from anything, it can be from a course of antibiotics, poor dietary choice, travel overseas for a week, a food poisoning, whatever it may be that started the dysbiosis that ends up uh, causing leaky gut and allowing LPS, which is an endotoxin produced in your gut, uh, to leak through and enter your system, that becomes the crux of why SIBO starts in the first place. Because your gut is leaky and that LPS is continuously leaking through, it causes SIBO in two ways. Number one is it interferes with the enteric nervous system, right? So, so LPS has been shown to be able to get into neurons in your enteric nervous system and shut down the electrical signals that cause the movement of the bowels. So both the migrating motor complex, which is the electrical sweeping of the bowels, which actually prevents, naturally prevents SIBO, and then also the peristaltic movement, the contraction of the bowels, uh, which, which is really important in getting everything moving down the system to, to a point where you defecate. So it does that in the enteric nervous system, but LPS can also cause central stasis, which means, and stasis is a word that's used for the bowel stopping. It's not moving anymore like, it, like it's supposed to. And that control actually comes from the vagal nerve. And so LPS can actually get into the to central nervous system and stop bowel movement from the brainstem itself, right? And that can occur years before SIBO ever develops. So basically, your body has a mechanism in place to protect against the development of SIBO. That's called the migrating motor complex and the peristaltic movement. The bowel is designed as an organ that cleans itself. But that control mechanism is based on an, a, a signal from your central nervous system that ends up in your enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system of the bowel, right? And this leaky gut stops both of those. So why we, start, why we see very little progress and improvement in SIBO is we're so focused on the end result of that overgrowth and the bloating. And so we're sending in antimicrobials and antibiotics to try to bring down that overgrowth as, uh, you know, as fast as we can. But then the moment you stop the antimicrobial, because the original problem is still there, the stasis is still there, you start to get a quick regrowth. Bacteria bounce back within hours, right? So you can't solve the problem with just killing. You have to go back and fix the system that's broken in the first place, and it'll alleviate that symptom. Right, so, so that's, that's my focus on, on SIBO. And so far I've been working with some people that have had tremendous success with it. You know, it, it does you know, give people some relief to bring down the overgrowth um, because it's, it, you're not so uncomfortable and, and embarrassed and all of that stuff that's associated with having this severe distension and discomfort when you eat food. So that's fine, we can address that. But doing so with an antibiotic or an antimicrobial typically will not have the results that you want. So we have to fix the leakiness of the gut. We have to stop the, um, the LPS from migrating through getting into the brain, getting into the enteric nervous system. We have to seal up the lining of the gut. We have to jumpstart the peristaltic movement, the migrating motor complex, while we are trying to bring down the overgrowth in the small bowel. It has to be a systemic approach or it's never going to be successful. 
Mm. Yeah, because it's so such a reoccurring problem, isn't it? People are for mm. years just constantly treating and treating, and then that's obviously causing detriment to the large intestine and the the microflora in there. But how would you treat the intestinal permeability when there's this gut infection in your small intestine? Yeah, so we actually have a combination of probiotics that we call the C diff or SIBO protocol. Um, it's actually one of our products called um, HU58, another product called Restore Flora, which has a combination of spores and Saccharomyces boulardii, um, and then of course the Megaspore. And the Megaspore already has published studies showing that it alleviates leaky gut. So the protocol that we put people on is you take two Megaspore a day, two HU58, and two Restore Flora. The combination of those probiotics is really powerful at controlling and bringing down the overgrowth of bacteria. So that's the primary symptom that people care about. So that starts to come under control, which makes all people already feel better. But at the same time, the megaspore is resealing the gut, re helping to rebuild the mucosa and reduce the inflammation and the enteropathy that's gone on with all of the damage to the small intestine. Because remember, Anyone that has SIBO has been through at least one or two rounds of antibiotics or antimicrobials, so you're going you're gonna to have damage the small intestine and likely the large intestine as well because you haven't been putting fiber into the system, so the large intestine doesn't have the nutrients that it needs to produce short-chain fatty acids and rebuild the mucosa and so on. So we, there's a lot of repair that has to be done. So we use that combination of probiotics, and then we also throw in a product called Mega IgG which is a bovine immunoglobulin. Now, what's so important about that particular product is it's clinical trials have shown that that particular product has the ability of reducing inflammation in the mucosa, which is going to be really important for regenerating the mucosa. It also um, neutralizes toxins, including C. diff toxin, mold toxins, uh, numerous types of bacterial toxins, uh, environmental toxins. So all of the things that can be causing inflammation and damage to the lining will be neutralized by the IgG. So it comes in and adds that helping hand that the gut needs as it's trying to rebuild and jumpstart the nervous system function within the gut itself. So we've had people with tremendous success um, just using the combination of those three probiotics and the IgG product uh, as well. Um, and that, that, has, that is going back to the idea of fixing the whole system rather than simply focusing on the symptom um, of, the, of a broken system, right? And then eventually what happens is after, you know, hopefully six to eight weeks, it kind of depends on the person um, when, when the actual SIBO issue is, is being brought under control, your bowels are moving again. That means the overgrowth is under control and your bowels are clearing out the potential overgrowth, then you can start eating more normal stuff, you know? And then one of the things that people can use is a prebiotic that we created to start regenerating the diversity in the, in the colonic flora, which has been suffering all of this time as well, right? Because you haven't been putting fermentable carbohydrates into the system. So it becomes a, a um, you know, a true um, comprehensive approach of fixing the broken system so that the problem doesn't arise again. Mm -hmm. And that's just a completely different approach to the majority of people, isn't it? Everyone, like I say, is just yeah. focused on the symptom. And even though we're using more naturopathic and holistic and natural ingredients, we're still kind of doing the same thing as conventional practitioners. 
It is, yeah. yeah. It's the same approach. We're just, yeah. and, and you know, conventional medicine does that, right? They see a symptom, they go after the symptom. They don't look at root cause, right? And mm-hmm. um, naturopathic na- and, and natural medicine is supposed to look at root cause, but we fail to really look at the root cause of SIBO. We've become very focused on the symptom. And, and I understand that because the symptoms are really, um, you know, cause a lot of dysfunction in people's lives. Right. And so people become focused on wanting to alleviate the symptom. And that's the pressure that the medical industry has is how do you alleviate the, uh, the, the symptom? Um, but we really have to go back to root cause and kind of, you know, look at what is broken about the system. And then we also need to realize that the, the, the way we've been approaching it obviously is not working. And so, you know, clearly we have to take a look at things in a different way. And it's kind of where we come in as a company at Microbiome Labs is we specialize in looking at a completely different angle and taking a completely different approach to to the problems that we see in our health system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's such a great company and the products that you have. It's only like a small range, isn't it? But mm-hmm. they're all very effective. And yeah, I definitely trust your advice on this. Thank you so much. And, you know, uh, one of the things I always tell people is our, the product range that we have comes out of pure need. You know, um, a lot of times when a company enters the supplement industry, you kind of do a whole bunch of me too products. You know, um, this company has a, you know, um, HCL product. So I'm going to do HCL. This company has this kind of product and a detox and a greens product and a protein. And before you know it, you know, virtually every company out there has three, 400 SKUs, um, but it, it all looks the same across mm-hmm. the board. We've kind of taken a systems biology approach to what we do, and we, we sit and we think about what system is broken in, in, our, in, our, um, in our human body, and, and then we try to find, is there a company that addresses that well? You know, and if there is a company that addresses that well, we don't do anything, but we don't launch a product in it because they're already doing it and we promote them and we talk about the product that they have. Um, but if there is nobody doing it right, then that's when we go in and we figure out how to create a product that is effective for that system. So that's that's our product development roadmap. It's it's not marketing driven. Um, you know, it's not revenue driven. It's purely science driven with the hope and the idea of fixing the human system. Mm, yeah, such great approach to that. And you're always providing a ton of content and resources online. Like on the website, there's a ton of webinars and on YouTube and you're on all these different podcasts and you can just tell that you're so passionate about that. Yes. You know, to me, the future of healthcare is people being empowered with the knowledge uh, to help themselves, right? I mean, we can't count on our doctors and and so on to take care of us. They're humans as well, right? They have um, they have hundreds and thousands of patients, and so you know the future of health and wellness is going to be each person advocating for themselves, advocating for their family members, their friends, um, you know, and and knowledge is going to be the biggest driver of that. So that's why I'm personally so passionate about spending endless hours doing recordings and doing interviews and all that um, because to me this is such an important system so you know with that in mind I do want to you know thank you for doing what you do as well because you you provide a platform for people like me to come on and talk and and act as a conduit to the audience right ultimately who would be helped hopefully by this information so you know it's always a pleasure um, getting a chance to do one of these interviews especially when someone's all the way in the UK um and you know, <laughs> a global audience and, yeah. and you're, you're spending your time in your uh, in your evening hours doing this so <laughs> I do appreciate exactly. that. 
So what about fermented foods? How do they play into um, the role of probiotics? Are they beneficial or should we not really bother with those? Yeah, um, fermented foods are interesting. Um, I, I was invited to do a talk at a, at a big fermentation festival in Santa Barbara, California, a couple of years ago. And um, my first line of the talk, I figured would either get me um, chased out of there with pitchforks and lanterns, or you know, people would uh, be um, offended enough to listen to some degree because these are fermentation maniacs, right? They they do everything fermentation. Um, but my first line was that fermented foods are not probiotics, right? They're not sources of probiotics. That's something that has to become very clear. Now, that doesn't mean that fermented foods are not useful. They are beneficial. They can be beneficial if it's a food that agrees with your system, right? There are going to be certain fermented foods that don't agree with people, just as there are foods that don't agree with people. Um, you know, there, there are fermented foods that you could take that would exasperate your problem. Uh, or, or, ex or exaggerate even your symptoms that you're, that you're uh, experiencing. And so uh, the, the benefit out of fermented food comes from the ferment itself. So the, the, the soup, if you will, that's in the fermented food, because really what a fermented food is, it's a regular food that's been pre-digested by bacteria. So when the bacteria is digesting it, they produce things like organic acids and peptides and vitamins and all of these important nutrients that can be really good for the gut. And so fermented foods is really kind of a superfood product. The bacteria that's doing the fermentation in the food is going to die when it hits your stomach acid. And that bacteria is not designed to go in and live in your gut and, and, and you know, convert things and, and act as a probiotic. So the benefit of fermented foods come from the ferment itself. It's not the bacteria going into your system and living. So it's not a source of probiotics. Now, our ancestors got both. They ate fermented foods because they um, accidentally let stuff spoil and decided, well, it's hard to, for food to come by. I'm going to eat the spoiled thing anyway and realize that it actually is okay for you. And then they also figured out how to ferment to preserve things. And again, that's where lactobacillus comes in because lactobacillus, when it ferments, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, produces lactic acid. So it acidifies things, which then pre prevents other bacteria or mold from growing in that food. So it helps preserve the food. So, um, you know, it can act as a uh, therapeutic food for your good bacteria in your gut. It can have some metabolic response in your gut, but it's not going to be a source of probiotics and it doesn't replace probiotic. So it's still important to take an effective clinically validated probiotic along with the fermented foods that you might have found that agree with you. And for someone like me who has histamine issues, then mm -hmm. fermented foods are just a no-no. And, I've yeah, made the mistake. and they're not going to agree with you. Yeah. yeah, I made the mistake of thinking it was a detox reaction. My gut was kind of um, just changing and improving, but it was actually doing the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it felt terrible. Right. You know, and, and the thing is like, you know, certain fermented foods come from certain regions, right? And, and your microbiome is not used to that kind of thing. For example, kimchi, you know, the, the Asian population, the Korean population, um, they have the system, the genetics, the microbiota to handle kimchi. It may not agree with everybody. It may not agree with pe people in the Latin part of the world or in the European part of the world because your microbiomes historically have not seen that. You know, it's a, it's a unique food. And so um, that, that is the important message about it. fermented foods is they can be useful, but you've got to be careful and make sure it's one that agrees with your system. And I, and I see more often than not people with histamine intolerance issues 
really can't go anywhere near fermented foods at all. Mm-hmm, definitely. And on the on the subject of diet, are mm-hmm. there any foods that are just overall beneficial to gut health, and mm-hmm. are there any that are detrimental to most people? Sure. Um, some of the best foods for gut health are going to be your roots and tubers. So roots, tubers, nuts, seeds all provide really interesting resistant starches, a, a really good variety of, of fibers and carbohydrates that feed a nice variety of bacteria within your gut. Fruits as well. A lot of people who've gone full on paleo or keto might get scared of fruits and not eat fruits anymore. But you know, if you look at the pulp of kiwi fruits, if you look at um, oranges, all of that, that pulp, the fibrous material has really, really important oligosaccharides and other types of prebiotics that are really important to your gut health in general and producing short chain fatty acids and other important uh, metabolites in your microbiome. The foods across the board that are going to be detrimental to virtually everybody are going to be anything processed, right? So if, if your food comes in a cute, fancy packaging and it, and it has um, you know, a whole bunch of emulsifiers in it, uh, preservatives, all of that processed food really doesn't feed much in your microbiome. It, it may feed certain, um, you know, certain classes of bacteria, but it's really going to negate uh, diversity within the microbiome. And certainly sugar and high amounts of salt can have a significant detriment to your microbiome. Uh, sugar, because of the simplicity of sugar, most of it gets absorbed in your small bowel, but what doesn't get absorbed is typically metabolized in the small bowel as well. It's not even providing any sustenance or nourishment for the vast majority of bacteria that exists in your large bowel. Um, and then salt actually can increase uh, the risk for autoimmune disease. And so salt increases inflammation in the system, and that inflammation can actually uh, negate the growth of certain types of bacteria within the system. So the you know, and, and when it comes to diet, it's really kind of simple. It's about eating real food. You don't have to be keto. You don't have to be paleo. You don't have to be um, you know on the Atkins diet, or you don't have to be vegan. You know, most of our ancestors did not follow a diet, right? They they ate what they could and what they could find and when they could. Um, most of our ancestors were omnivores. And so they ate lots of different things. They ate nuts and seeds and insects and roots and tubers and animals and vegetables and fruits. And, you know, and so they, they just ate what they could get their hands on. And so the idea is eating real food. And it's about eating unprocessed stuff as much as you can and then getting as much variety in your system as you can. That's, that's going to be the biggest impact on your overall health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice. You don't need to be on one diet or you don't need to be cutting big food groups out of your diet i think Mm -hmm. there's we're just getting into the um trap of restriction and following certain fads so just focus on real food yeah love that advice you know and the problem with it is a lot of that is not necessarily based on hard science it's based on the the idea of activism you know and 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 activism is is really good it can help a lot of things it makes the world progress but it, it can also be blinding for the people that are absolutely laser focused on that idea and that mindset. And so, you know, if you're going 100% keto all the time, I can tell you with certainty it's going to cause issues with your microbiome down the road because it causes dysbiosis and it shrinks your diversity. And at the end of the day, even though you may have lost a few pounds initially um, because you've cut out sugar, it's, it's going to cause a significant 
um, damage to your microbiome down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a feeling that everyone's going to maybe in five years' time start to regret some of the decisions that they're making these days. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I mean, we, we used to think that soy was better to eat for everything, right? And so remember the days when everyone spent their morning eating a soy burger, drinking soy milk, eating a soy bar, and now we come to realize that, oh, wait a minute, that might cause breast cancer and other issues. Yeah. You know, so we, we, we do health in trends and we try to oversimplify health and we try to oversimplify the practice of health but really what we need to be doing is just kind of going back to our roots of being human and being human is eating a whole bunch of different things that's actually what allowed us to move up the evolutionary ladder and move up the food chain is our ability to be an omnivore and eat a variety of different things, right? And so I always give the example of like a lion is an obligate carnivore, right? A lion cannot eat a plant and survive. Um, a wildebeest is an obligate herbivore. It cannot eat meat and survive. So if there's a drought, the wildebeest has, has fewer plants to eat and it will likely die. And because the lion has to eat the wildebeest, it'll likely die as well. And that's, the, that's you know, nature. That's how biology works. But humans are unique in that if there's a drought, well, we can dig for termites in a termite mound and eat that. We can dig for nuts in the ground or we can eat, you know, um, uh, uh, bark of trees. We can do all kinds of stuff. Um, and we've been able to survive through all of those different changes in, in the world and the, in the environment. And our microbiome is designed to feed and support an omnivore type of diet. So it's, it's really important that the diversity and all of that so that we don't have to learn five years down the road, seven years down the road that we've been screwing ourselves up for the last you know, half a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, just going back to being human is really the, the focus, I think. Great. So I want to finish up with just a few quick fire questions. So the first one would be, what's the biggest mistake that you see people making when it comes to the health? Um, I think that what we just talked about yeah. was, was one, you know, following one path, yeah. uh, being laser focused and activist mindset of, on one particular uh, path and, and not looking at the diversity and, and the importance of diversity in what we eat, what we drink, how we approach disease, how we approach wellness, mindset, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. If there was one herb, nutrient or supplement that you couldn't live without, what would it be? For me, it'd be the spores. I mean, the, what they do, the bacterial spores, what they do in the system, I have not seen another bacteria, nutrient that can do all of those same things. And I think that if I was uh, stuck on a deserted island and I had my spores, I'd probably be okay for a while. Great. And what's something that you're into lately? So it could be health-related, it could be completely random. Yeah. You know, I, I had um, a, a, a really deep passion for quantum physics and um, uh, astronomy um, a long time ago. And, and I'd read a bunch of books on quantum mechanics and all that. Um, and, and I had to put it away to really kind of focus on the microbiology stuff. But lately, I've kind of been going back to it. Um, and, and because we've made huge uh, leaps and bounds in understanding you know, quantum particles and quantum physics and how the universe came about and the Big Bang and all that. And, and that's something that I've been really into. And what's cool about it is that when you understand how the universe works, you see so many similarities in how the body works. 
right? Because we all are made up of stardust anyway, right? The Every um, piece of matter, every element that makes up the human body came from a dying star at some point somewhere in the universe. And so the same theories and the same mathematics and the same principles hold true for what's going on out there in the outside, in the vast universe, in the parts of the, play, of the universe we can't see um, as, as what's going on in our system. So that's been a really awesome uh, way for me to kind of interconnect biology and science as a whole in a super nerdy way. <laughs> no, I love it. And I think that's a perfect way to wrap up the interview. So we're all made of stardust and mm -hmm. we should all eat wide, diverse range of foods. Yeah. So, and on one yeah. more thing, um, yeah. uh, you know, the, we cannot overstate the importance of human connection, right? Um, our, we share microbes when we connect. We increase each other's oxytocin levels, which brings down stress hormone levels, which improves the diversity of your microbiome, which reduces inflammation, which reduces leaky gut. Um, all of those things are so important. So human interaction is something that we're also missing in this modern age because we're all connected through devices and connected through the web. So as much as you can, getting together with people, hugging, kissing, um, you know, holding hands, all of this really important human connection is absolutely critical to our wellness. And the more we get away from that, uh, the less human we are being. So that's going to have a detriment to our overall health. Very true. Yeah, I love that you've added that little point on as well. I think we often forget about that. We're focused on diet and exercise and yeah, that all the time. So yeah, mm -hmm. love that. So I want to thank you so much, Kieran, for your time. And I've actually learned a ton from this interview. So I think everyone's going to have their mind blown. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.